HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hey there, and welcome to the Feed Feed podcast. I'm Alexis Santos, a senior producer at the Feed Feed. The Feed Feed is the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source for what to cook, bake, eat, and drink. Here on the Feed Feed podcast, we are speaking with members of the hashtag Feed Feed community to hear their stories, learn about some of their culinary inspirations, and get some of their best cooking tips. I'm very excited to be joined today by Lulade Mogues. Lulade is an enthusiastic home cook of Ethiopian descent and soon-to-be cookbook author. Lulade grew up in Ethiopia and learned the art of traditional Ethiopian cuisine from her grandmother, mother, and aunts. Her upcoming cookbook is called Enibla, which means let's eat. This debut collection of more than 65 recipes, vivid photography, and family anecdotes is an accessible, authentic introduction to Ethiopian cuisine. So I'm already hungry just talking about this, but I'm so excited to be talking to you about this more. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Amazing. So tell me, let's walk it back to the very beginning. So you were born in Ethiopia. How long did you live there? I guess what is kind of your your childhood story there? (laughs) So yes, I was born in Ethiopia in the capital city of Addis Ababa. Um, and I lived there with my family till about age 12. Um, mm-hmm. and then at that point for a better education and future and everything, uh, my family ended up moving all of us. So my parents and both my siblings, um, and we moved to, um, the, the U.S., uh, the first place being Dallas, Texas is where we lo- relocated to. So all right, uh, huge change. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So what was that kind of I guess, <laughs> what was that process like for you, kind of completely adapting to a brand new country and culture? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it was initially 100% a culture shock. And then, of course, it was 
a lot to adjust to. One of the things being uh, the language. So um, I didn't speak any English. <laughs> so that really? was definitely the hardest part. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, when I was in Ethiopia, uh, my sister and I went to an Italian school. Um, and so I only spoke Italian and Amharic, which is the Ethiopian language. And mm-hmm. um, luckily my brother went to an Indian school. So they, his, he was learning Amharic and English. So transition for him was a lot easier versus I moved and, you know, I'm in middle school. And then it was like, Hey, now you have to go to ESL because you can't attend classes because everything is in English. Oh, so, <laughs> so definitely, um, a fast learning curve. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You really got like dropped right into it <laughs> pretty <laughs> yes. much. Yikes. So then what was it kind of like for you? I guess let's go back to Ethiopia when you were growing up. What were you kind of cooking? Were you, were you helping? I know we talked about your grandmother and aunts and mother kind of teaching you how to cook. Were you At what age did you start having an interest in that? So I think um, I'm one of those people that if you tell me I can't do something, <laughs> I'm very big on like, okay, now I'm doing it. So uh-huh. growing up, uh, my parents were just like, okay, you guys just need to focus on your schooling. And then like all the cooking and cleaning and everything was done by our maids. And so what I would do would be like, you know, you know, my grandmother always loved cooking for us. So every weekend when we'd go visit, she would allow me in the kitchen. And my mom's like, we don't want her in there. She's too young. And I think I was like five. Mm-hmm. And I, my, my grandmother, of course, you know, it's her say. So uh, that's when I started being like intrigued by what is this fancy place that I'm not allowed to be in. <laughs> that, <laughs> like, And so it just it started like opening up my curiosity. And then, you know, growing up like six, seven or whatnot, every time my parents would be not like when they're not home or if they're out of town, I would just maximize it by just spending time in the kitchen and watching and learning. Um, and then of course the, you know, the, we did have like growing up, one of the biggest things that I miss and I loved so much was every weekend there was an event in my house, uh, because my parents always hosted something. And so for those events, then my mom would be the, the one doing the menu planning and the some of the cooking and my aunts would come over and then they would be like, okay, now you can help. And they would let me do like minimal stuff like rolling meatballs and stuff like that, like something yeah. that doesn't involve cutting. And so <laughs> that's when I was like... I love this place because I'm not allowed to be in it. And then you get to create these amazing stuff and then you eat it afterwards. So it's like play and then enjoy. <laughs> so, yeah, pretty ideal, honestly. <laughs> right. And so that's kind of how I started getting really interested on that, like on the food and the cooking side. Mm-hmm. And what was some of the stuff? I mean, I'm not super familiar with you know, traditional Ethiopian cuisine, what are some of the dishes that you would eat back when you were growing up there? You probably still eat today, but what are some of those dishes that you grew up with? So that is true. I definitely still eat it um, at least three to four times a week. Uh, So, uh, But the main things, it would be like uh, based on uh, the season, meaning like if it's uh, because Ethiopian heritage or culture is very religious um, and we are Ethiopian Orthodox. So um, we do fast for 40 days for Lent. 
Oh, wow. um, but very similar to the Catholic Lent. Uh, the only difference is, you know, for Lent, you give up one thing versus the Ethiopian Orthodox is you basically become vegan. <laughs> so you give okay. up all the meats, fishes, dairy, and all of that. So if it's between that time, my favorite go-to dish that I loved would be um, my grandmother's shiro, which is like this chickpea stew. Mm. Um, and honestly, I make it, my mom makes it, my aunt makes it, and it's all good, but no one makes it the way my grandmother did. And it's the way everybody feels. Like, it's just, oh yeah, I can't even tell you like what she did, but it was something <laughs> about it that it just tasted so much better with the way she made it. Oh, I know. That's how, that's how my, we are with my grandma's matzo ball soup because we're Jewish. So we, it's the same thing. Like we, since she passed, we've tried to redo it and I've gotten close, but definitely not there. <laughs> so I totally and know what you you're just, talking You can't about. recreate it. I don't even, I mean, I'm talking about uh, all of my mom's sisters have the recipe, right? They all mm-hmm. like grew up doing it. And then I have the recipe because she's shown it to me and don't get me wrong, it's good, but like I make it for my brother and he'll just like, you're good, you know, it's decent. Um, it's, not gran- it's not grandmother's, but <laughs> it's like, and so uh, that would be the one dish that I would always tell you that was like my favorite. And then uh, all the other times, um, I mean, there's so many dishes that I enjoy. I mean, it is a very carnivore culture, so we mm-hmm. do eat a lot of meat. So the big things being stuff like um, kutfo, which is one of my go-to favorite dishes. It's um, an Ethiopian beef tartare. And Yum. I know it's so good. Everybody has a different preference. I like it essentially just raw, uh, but you can cook it medium rare to fully cooked. Um, and then, or there's like a, the multiple different variations of uh, tibs, which is sauteed meat and that honestly is kind of like my almost the week that when I say I'm going to eat three to four times a week, <laughs> it's like come home, saute some meat with some veggies and boom, I have dinner in like 20 minutes. Yeah, there you go. My gosh. So you started, you know, you definitely wanted to get involved. And would you say that you learned a lot of your cooking back when you were in Ethiopia or was it more when you got, you know, settled in in Texas and kind of growing up like when did you kind of start your culinary journey I personally I mean the the want and the need and the desire was definitely when I was back home but that technical side of it started after we moved to the states because you know another culture shock we don't have maids here right and so it was like it went from you're not allowed into the kitchen to go in the kitchen and help your mother and so being my mother's sous chef um, or when it was my dad's turn to cook being my dad's little sous chef it that's when not only did I get to see it like I did back home I actually started like chopping up things and you know tasting and seeing like okay what is it that you're doing you're tasting and seeing the level of the spice and if it's too spicy how are you making it like how are you diluting it like it's just it was very more hands-on technical after we moved to the states Okay. Interesting. So then where did you start with? What did you start? I mean, were you cooking mostly traditional Ethiopian food or did you kind of start assimilating and trying to cook more American food at that point? Oh yeah. Um, we definitely assimilated because it was, 
you know, you try to, of course, especially for us being like young teenagers, we're like, we want fast food, <laughs> you know, yes, we, we don't want Ethiopian food. And so um, it would always be like a rotational thing. Um, but, you know, kind of like now after I've grown up, it's like I crave Ethiopian food. So I know my mom and dad craved it because that was like a little piece of home. So we still did like burger night and lasagnas and, um, you know, just other Americanized foods. But we definitely threw in traditional Ethiopian food again, at least two to three times a week, especially Good. weekends. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was really important to your family to kind of keep that culture as you were, you know, assimilating here in the States. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Amazing. So then do you have siblings? Were they also involved with the cooking or was this kind of just you? (laughs) (laughs) I do have siblings. Um, So it would be like my brother's job was mostly like helping set up the table and then cleaning up and doing the dishes or whatnot. And then my sister was kind of too young at the time. Um, so she was basically showed up to eat. <laughs> and now, of course, now she does a lot more and she also has her own, um, things that she loves to cook and, you know, things that she focuses on. Um, but I was definitely the one that was like, mom, teach me, show me. I went and learned, uh, type of person. Okay, good, good. So yeah, you really took a, uh, a passion to this pretty early on. So when did you start kind of taking it more seriously and getting to the point where now, you know, you have enough expertise in it to have a cookbook coming out? Yeah. Well, the thing about it is as much as I loved cooking Ethiopian food, the biggest struggle was that it is very time consuming because you, it takes time to like develop the flavors and you know, you're making a stew that takes like four hours. And, Mm -hmm. you know, my mom would be cooking on the weekends for the week. Um, And when I got to college, uh, first of all, I was never that trained to cook on the weekends for the week, right? It's a daily thing. Um, And so that's when I was like, I, I would crave these foods and I can't make it because I didn't have time. Mm. So I started experimenting, just trying to see how I can essentially take shortcuts, but not at the expense of the flavor. And I started with one dish and it was a lot of trial and error and then kind of like started working on it and researching and stuff. And then basically slowly building on that. Um, and then, um, I've actually been in the hospitality industry for over like 15 years, uh, being also working in a lot of restaurants, uh, from the front of the house and then, you know, having friends that are chefs and talking and everything. And I just was like getting a lot, building my information and my knowledge, um, to essentially execute and teach and show. Um, and this, plan or dream actually came about a little over seven to eight years ago uh, when I would have friends say, hey, I really love that dish. Can you send me the recipe? And and my sister saying, hey, mom showed me how to do this, but I know there's an easier way. Yeah. <laughs> Can you send me your version, you know, type of thing? Um, and so I kept on saying I should really write all these recipes down. And life happens, right? And then I finally got a chance to put it all down and kind of like share it with the world. 
Amazing. So, I mean, what are some of your kind of specialties? Like what are some of your top dishes that everybody's always like, give me the recipe for that? <laughs> uh, definitely the Tibbs one. It's a beef stir fry. Uh, it's kind of like everyone loves it because who doesn't love sauteed beef that's flavorful? Yes. Um, the lentil stew is another one. It's called misirwet. Um, That one from beginning to end, the dish takes about 25 minutes, right? Really? <laughs> so, and if you're like a slow chopper, 30 minutes. <laughs> so it's a, a dish that's supposed to take about two and a half hours. Um, and so those are like the two that everybody just kind of gravitates towards. Um, mm-hmm. And then after that, it's just kind of people, depending on their, I guess, spice level is how okay. <laughs> that the dishes that they request. Okay. Yum. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so is Ethiopian food typically pretty spicy then? Um, it is, it is on a spicier level. Um, but, and you'll even see this in my book and people joke around about it, but trust me, it works. Every time I meet somebody and I know that they've never had Ethiopian food, I do something called a Taco Bell test, right? Okay. And, I know, and it's like, everybody's like, what? What's that got to do with Ethiopian food? But the way I can know what level of spice you can handle and so I know what to make for you is by saying, because everyone at some point in their life, no matter where you've lived or at least majority of people have been to Taco Bell. So I always yes. ask... When you go to Taco Bell, what salsa do you get? <laughs> right? So are you on the mild? Are you a medium? Are you hot? Or are you the Diablo? Like, and based on the type of salsa you get, I'll know your tolerance level and then be able to make you something. Because to ask somebody, do you eat Indian food or do you eat Mexican food? Doesn't really tell me because there are milder dishes in Mexican and Indian food. Right. Um, so that's my fancy Taco Bell test that people, you know, look at me crazy for, but I'm telling you it works. Yes. Oh my gosh. That's, that seems pretty important, honestly. Okay. So my answer is I think I'm the hot, the hot one, at, or maybe is, medium, between medium and hot, I would yeah. say. And that's perfect because that means then you can literally eat 95% of the Ethiopian food and you'll be fine. Because there's only certain dishes that are go above, right? Like on the Diablo side. And that's by choice. Like we will have uh, an awaze, which is the Ethiopian hot sauce. So we'll have a dish like the dips that I said, the beef stir fry. And if you like the Diablo stuff, you would eat the beef stir fry and then dip it in the hot sauce, like to elevate it. (laughs) And so you don't need to do that. Um, Or we'll have like... um, jalapenos and so instead of putting in jalapenos which is what I usually put in the dishes you can put in serranos if you want to go even spicier um, okay so that's kind of like so you like you could just go and just eat the food normally and you wouldn't have to be because you're not necessarily spice sensitive if you like the hot one okay good to know yeah I'm like processing all this like wow okay this is very important intel <laughs> And it is because, you know, for me, the one of the things that I always emphasize on, regardless of what dish I'm making or cooking is, don't get me wrong, I love spicy food, but I love flavor, not like blow your palate type of spice, right? Yes. Then then what are you eating? 
Exactly. It's just like capsaicin at that point. Exactly. So why would I make you something that is so spicy that you're not really even enjoying it? You're just putting just food in your mouth. Uh, So it's always good to gauge the spice level of the person so that you can adjust accordingly. Okay. All right. I... I like this this whole mentality. I'm I'm here for it. <laughs> have you had Ethiopian food before? Or I don't think I have. Honestly, I think I mean I'm trying to think of a time that I have. I mean, I've lived in big cities. I've you know I've lived in New York. I've lived in Chicago, but I don't think I've ever found myself at an Ethiopian restaurant per se. Oh, wow. And I haven't had any you know Ethiopian friends to cook for me either. So now I'm like thinking here I'm like okay, I need to figure this out. I need to go get me some. <laughs> exactly. And that's the thing is a lot of times people um you know they either they don't know about that there there's Ethiopian mm-hmm. food in their city or whatnot and I say this to all my friends. I have friends from all over the world and I always tell them there's Ethiopians everywhere. You name a city or a place, I will find you an Ethiopian restaurant right. or an Ethiopian person. And um a few a few years back one of my really good friends from college was getting married in Budapest, uh Hungary and I went there for like a week for the wedding and my friends are like, what are you going to do for a whole week without Ethiopian food? I'm like, oh, I'll find it. <laughs> and then on the second day, sure enough, Ethiopian restaurant. <laughs> You found it. I found it. And is there a lot of Ethiopian food in um in Los Angeles or oh, California? Yeah. There's a huge um Ethiopian population in LA. Um they're kind of like spread out a little bit, but most of them are in the Inglewood area. Uh we even have a little area um in LA called Little Ethiopia. <laughs> it's an oh, actual really? neighbor. Yes, it's an actual neighborhood. So and you and you drive down that one strip and it's like back to back of Ethiopian markets and restaurants and like the Ethiopian flag is everywhere, so you can't miss it. <laughs> Okay. Wow. I didn't know that. I'm actually going to be in Los Angeles later this month. So I feel like I should check it out. Oh, you definitely should. (laughs) I feel like I totally missed that opportunity when I was living in New York for whatever reason. I'm sure. I mean, I I don't know specifically of any Ethiopian restaurants in New York off the top of my head, but I'm sure, I mean, they have everything in New York. So there's got to be. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, hmm, which list should I give you? Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, send them over. Yeah. Yeah, Send them over. There's definitely um, Ethiopian restaurants like almost in every city that I can think of. Um, you know, I'm, I've never, I don't know if you've ever been to the DC area, but uh, Washington DC actually has the largest Ethiopian population outside of Ethiopia. What? <laughs> so, yeah, everybody's there. Like they're all flocked there somehow. And there's a huge, huge population in DC um, or even like the surrounding areas, like the Northern Virginia, like the DMV area. And then the next, and then the next major areas will be Atlanta, Dallas, Los Angeles, and Toronto. Okay, I mean, I mean, good to know. Yeah. So there's, I mean, they're definitely everywhere, but those main hubs, you're gonna have like places like that are even named like Little Ethiopia and stuff like that. Okay. Well, I'm glad that I um I'm glad that I have you to teach me about all this because <laughs> you definitely seem like an expert in the space. Oh, I know. Anytime you're going to a city and you're looking for Ethiopian food, just message me and I'll tell you where to go and what to get. Okay, amazing. I love that. All right, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's. 
home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. So obviously you have a ton of expertise in finding Ethiopian restaurants and then also cooking Ethiopian food. But what was that kind of process like for you of, you know, kind of putting all these recipes, these, you know, childhood memories of yours to paper and kind of, you know, immortalizing them in, in this way. I know it's definitely a beast to get a, to get a cookbook out there. So. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It was a lot of work. Um, One of the big things is, you know, just kind of like most people that have been doing this for a long time or cooking for a long time is um, you don't measure, right? <laughs> you don't yeah. actually measure to like when, because you know it by, uh, I know how to cook by looking at the food and tasting it. And I know if it yeah. has enough spice or whatnot. And then I'm like, I'll taste it. And I'm like, oh, more salt, less salt, whatnot. So to have to actually measure it out to make sure that it's turning out the way it's supposed to is a lot of trial and error. Um, and you know, like initially when I was cooking, um, my boyfriend will say, Hey, you know, you, you know, you measure with your heart. <laughs> so it's like, cause I'm like just putting stuff in by just looks, but to have to essentially give this recipe to somebody who's never made the dish before, or even sometimes never even had the food before. And to guide them to make sure that they get it right, it was a lot of making the same dish over and over and over again. And then even sometimes utilizing my friend saying, hey, I'm going to send you this recipe. Can you just make it real quick and let me know if it works out? Um, And them saying, you know, this worked, but this part was a little bit confusing. And so it was a literal over a year and a half of just menu planning and testing um, to mm-hmm. get to where I'm at now. And so how does it feel to be at this at this point? Honestly, it feels amazing. Um, you know, I got, it was such a lot of back and forth and work and the, everything that when um, I had, like they sent me one copy of the book because, you know, it doesn't come out until October, but Um, so when I received it in the mail to like have basically a seven year long dream and a, and a two year hard work in your hands, it's Mm -hmm. definitely emotional. I'm not going to lie. 
I bet. My gosh, that's crazy. And like, how did your your family, your Ethiopian family feel about all of this? Well, first of all, my mom is the best PR I've ever had in my life. <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you. Is, you know, the the my biggest worry was that I am not trying to make anything that's like, I'm not making a fusion. I'm not making like a California Ethiopian dishes. It's our authentic dishes. Just taking a few shortcuts just for, you know, anybody who lives in um, a world that has to work. You know, I work between 12 to 14 hour days sometimes. And, yeah. you know, you want to be able to come home and make a dish and not have to worry about it taking, you know, hours. And so um, I remember once I put all my proposal together, just even looking for publishers, I went to my mother and I showed it to her and she was like, what is this? What do you mean? What do you mean you boil it first? Like, <laughs> so she was just like, that's wrong. That's not how you make it. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, cause she, you know, looking, reading at the recipe, she's like, mm, this is not going to come out right. And then I ended up just was like, just give me a minute. I'm going to go in the kitchen. And I made one of the dishes, which is the lentil stew for her, which is one of her favorite dishes. And she tasted it and she's like, yeah, see, that's how you do it. The way I showed you, right? I'm like, no, mom, that's the way the recipe's written. And she's like, oh, well, oh, then boy. it works. <laughs> so, and so getting mom's stamp of approval, I mean, it's everything, right, for anybody. Oh, yes. um, and so for her to say, you know, again, listen, my mom's not going to be making these dishes the way I do because, you know, she's old school and she likes yes. the old way of making it. But um, her approving it was a big stamp of, like, a success for me because I was like, okay, I'm staying true to my culture and the dishes are authentic. They're not like a fusion of me trying to create something new. Um, And, you know, like I said, one of also the big motivators behind it was my younger sister who left when we were young. So she never got a chance to sneak into the kitchen like me and, (laughs) you know, be in the kitchen with my mom growing up. So now she's, um, you know, a hardworking nurse and works a lot of hours. And I know she wants to learn and how to make our dishes and she doesn't know. And so it's like for people like her who either were born and raised in the U.S. or never got an opportunity to learn and are sometimes discouraged because they're like, who has time to make four-hour dishes? Right. No, I mean, and that's the reality for most of us is that we don't have that type of time to commit to cooking. So you're kind of, you know, it's almost like having your cake and eating it too, where you're able to, you know, tap into these cultural traditions, but then also make it, you know, quicker and more accessible. So yeah, you're kind of doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I, you know, and that's one of the things that's like, it's just something to just put in the roster of the daily dishes, you know, so because you can only make pasta and burgers and, you know, <laughs> like the yeah. rice and the chicken. And you can only make so many things over and over again where you're just like come home and have 30 minutes to put dinner on the table and say, you know what, guys, you want to have Ethiopian tonight? <laughs> yeah, let's do like, something sure, different. Let's do something different. Um, yeah. And so and because a lot of times you know, not knowing scares people, right? So, right. you know, when, like, if you've never had Ethiopian food, you don't even know what you're looking for. And then you have this cookbook that guides you to come, you know, to essentially create these dishes in the most simplest way. You're like, okay, now it's more approachable. 
Yeah, no, totally. I I mean, I get that 100%. And do you think it's like a big part of your mission here to kind of make Ethiopian food more accessible and attainable to, you know, the masses and people like me who are interested, who, but who haven't really had a lot of experience or exposure to it. Is that kind of a big part of why you wanted to do this as well? Absolutely. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a very proud Ethiopian. I love my culture, my people and everything else. And don't get me wrong, I am also an American and there's that side too. But, you know, I'm creating this not only, like you said, just kind of just to show people and make it accessible and say like, listen, this is this amazing thing that you're missing out on. <laughs> that you, yeah. you know, It's available to you, but also, you know, to show people like how, because for example, a lot of the, all of our dishes, we eat it on injera, which is this sour flat bread that, you know, you have to make. And there is a recipe for it. And that one takes a little bit longer. So you can also buy it anywhere. Right. And so if you, you know, there's some people who may not like it because it's a little bit sour or they may not be able to find it a lot of the dishes shows you like, hey, actually this one you can eat with pita bread or you can eat it over rice. And so Mm -hmm. it's still attainable and still accessible where, you know, it's kind of like you can add that to your life. (laughs) Right. A little bit of Ethiopian in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, I'm like super excited to be learning more about this and kind of hearing all, you know, the thought that went into this because it's, it seems like it's very, it's delivering on something that people may have not known that they needed, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, another portion also is like I said, you know, we do fast every year for 40 days. And uh, because a lot of times when you do see Ethiopian food photos, videos or whatnot, or things being posted, it's all meat stuff, right? But we have a huge selection of vegetarian, vegan dishes. Um, And I mean, a lot, like about almost all of them, they're all vegan, but the only time they're not is because during the non-Lent season, we still eat these vegetarian dishes and we cook it with butter instead of uh, the oil or the olive oil. So anybody who's a vegetarian and vegan, well, here you go. Here's another thing that you can add that you can switch things up, right? Yeah. Um, and because they, they tend to just, you know, Ethiopian food is, oh, meat, meat, meat. It's like, no, you there's we eat a lot of vegetables. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I bet that's kind of an interesting juxtaposition where most of the year, like you said, it's a very carnivorous diet, and then all of a sudden, like you're vegan. So yeah, well, trust I mean, me, you definitely have to then. pace it in. <laughs> like, it's not like forty days is up and then you start eating all the meat. That's when you—that's gonna be an issue. You have to yeah. slowly break your fast and go back to the carnivore life <laughs> afterwards. I mean, I'm sure that's pretty good for you, honestly, to have that kind of break from all that. I mean, obviously, I mean, I, I'm i not vegan or anything, but, you know, I've heard so much about the benefits of it. So it's almost like kind of you're dabbling in veganism for part of the year and then you can kind of wean yourself back on and off and you kind of, I don't know, it's probably like a nice cleanse, I would imagine. I don't know. 100%. I mean, I've never done it. And then again, also depending on the person's religion and how strict they are, there's also like, cause if you, you know, if you're orth, cause Orthodox, Ethiopian Orthodox is basically like Greek Orthodox, right? Yeah. So they also don't, are also vegan on Wednesdays and Fridays for the rest of the okay. year, right? So, oh. um, 
personally, it's kind of hard to do that <laughs> for me. Yeah. You know, I'll do the 40 days, but the Wednesdays and Friday for the rest of the year, because to be honest, sometimes life just gets past you and you forget even what day it is. Yes. <laughs> so- and Fridays are like a party day most of the time. It's like, you know, you know I'm I like, my oh, pizza or whatever, you know. Or you have a glass of wine and you have a cheese and charcuterie board in front of you. What do you do? Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's hard. Especially, yeah, I mean, like Wednesday, I guess I could do. But Friday, I like to let loose on Friday. I know. I'm like, you're like can we do like Monday, Wednesday instead? Yeah, Monday, Wednesday, yeah, Monday, Wednesday seems perfectly sane. But Friday's right. tough, so... So I know. So it's just little things like that, you know. Um, But as far as like the, for the, when you're doing your menu planning and cooking and whatnot, it's, you know, you can, there's a lot of dishes that also have substitutions in the cookbook. For example, there's these collard greens. You can have that as just the way it is, or there's the other version, which is collard greens with beef. So if you're vegan, just have the collard greens. If you like your the meat in there, and so like there's not just 65 recipes or 65 recipes plus, because each recipe will have a variation of spicy, non-spicy, vegan, or with meat. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I feel that. I mean, that's that's really smart. And I think especially, I mean, as it's part of your culture and your religion to be doing that. But I mean, for whatever, you know, for better or for worse, that's a big, you know, kind of trendy aspect of American society these days as people, you know, going vegan or trying to, you know, dabble with more of a plant-based diet. So it's- I live in LA, trust me, I know. Yeah, I mean, without you really, you know, without that being your inspiration, yeah, I mean, that's kind of scratching an itch that society is kind of looking for right now anyway. So that's kind of another cool part of this. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's also healthier, right? And right. so, you know, some there's times where I'm just like, I kind of eat way too much meat and I'm like, okay, I need to take a break now. <laughs> like, I right. need a few, yeah. I, I need some leaves in here and I need some veg, like vegetables. And, um, and then it's always okay to just kind of like go back and forth and just kind of balance, finding a balance for your diet. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes, that makes sense. I mean, I think I'm, I'm certainly inspired to kind of like try this cuisine and, you know, kind of dabble with that type of it. It seems like a very like, kind of well-rounded sort of, you know, holistic approach to to food where you kind of have those indulgent type times, but then you mm-hmm. also kind of clean it up at other times. And it seems like it's kind of healthy and, you know, cultural and like for a greater reason other than just like, you know, it being an American trend, basically. Exactly. <laughs> to no, be it was definitely that, that was not the inspiration at all. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but it it that's just another plus, right? And so, on top of everything else, you know, you know, making my family proud, making my Ethiopian people proud, and um, and you know, all, and basically putting together. I mean, the the cookbook is just a little bit more than just a book of just recipes. There's a lot of like stories of my upbringing and each recipe will tell you like a memory that it reminds me of. Um, you'll see the, the chickpea stew, the shirowet, and we'll say, this is the one that I, you know, my, that's my grandmother's dish. Or it will right. say like, here's this beef stir fry that when it was my dad's turn to cook, you, you're guaranteed that we were having toast that day, <laughs> you yeah. know, he didn't have a lot of dishes that he was good at. So that those would be the ones that he would make for us. And, um, and you'll also see, uh, cause Ethiopian, um, 
food does have uh, some Western influence. Mm-hmm. So specifically being the Italian side. And so you will see in there some dishes where you're like, how did this get in here? Like you'll see lasagna oh. recipes and you'll see a milifoni recipes or tiramisu recipes and stuff. And you're just, you know, when people are like, why is this happening? It's because we just had such a huge influence from the Italian culture that um, especially our desserts are going to be all Italian <laughs> or Western. I had no idea about that. When you you were saying you went to an Italian school, I kind of just like had a question mark pop up in my brain and kind of forgot about it. But I did not know that. I was like, okay, I guess, cool. She went to an Italian school, so be it. (laughs) I guess that's why I did not know that. Very interesting. Yeah, so like a little bit of the backstory being, um, you know, in Africa, the only two countries that were not colonized were Ethiopia and Libya. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, every country that was colonized will have the, I guess, residual still, um, like historically from that, like from what the country that was there, for example, Kenya, right. I know the British colonized the Kenyans. And so tea is a very big thing, right? They have a tea ceremony yeah. and all of that stuff. From the Ethiopian side, the Italians tried and tried and tried, failed. So, you know, they basically gave up and decided to leave. Well, it was time to leave. A lot of the soldiers decided to stay. <laughs> So, you know, because of that, there's generations and generations of um, the influence that you can still see. Um, And so there's a lot of people who still speak Italian and uh, or are mixed or have some Italian heritage. Um, And so that's one of the main reasons why. All right. Fascinating. Thank you for the history lesson. I'm learning so much today. (laughs) I appreciate it. Of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for telling me all about your story and your background and, you know, all these things that, you know, I feel personally just kind of, it's a joy to hear about and learn about this kind of aspect of, you know, culture that I really had not had a ton of experience with. So, you know, I really appreciate you sharing all that with me and to our listeners and, you know, kind of telling us about all this stuff that means so much to you. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's definitely been a pleasure. I'm so glad. Yeah. And I'm excited to uh, learn and try some Ethiopian food. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Glad to hear it. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is the Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. If you have a food story to tell or want us to interview a blogger, cookbook, author, chef, or restaurateur, we would love your suggestions just send us a DM on Instagram. See you next time. The Feed Feed podcast is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.